This is Sound Truth, the teaching ministry of Pastor Malcolm Wilde. Now here's Pastor Malcolm. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplication, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Paul exhorting Timothy to place an emphasis on prayer in the ministry. Of course, Timothy at this time was basically pastoring the church in Ephesus, or he'd gone there in Paul's stead, as it were, to try and uh, sort out some of the difficulties they were having there in Ephesus. And Paul's telling him that, really, we need to place the emphasis on prayer. Supplications, of course, that's making requests, prayers. Uh, intercession is interceding, usually, of course, praying for other people, giving of thanks. Important that we cultivate a spirit of thanksgiving, a, an attitude of thankfulness. So much to thank God for, so much to thank each other for. And it says, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So the focus on prayer is for all men, as he says, and, and for kings, and for all who are in authority. This, of course, is something we are instructed to do in the scripture, and to pray for them, that, as it says here, we might uh, lead a quiet and peaceable life. I don't know why we're complaining about the government if we're not praying for the government or the people in authority. And I think we need to pray more and more because in these days, of course, it's going to come down to really perhaps persecution against the church. Anybody who stands for Jesus Christ and the truth of the word of God and stands upon the word of God and, you know, and, and really seeks to live by the word of God and preach the word of God. We may come to a time where we receive some difficulty and hassle. So you need to pray for the government. Of course, here again, God's showing that he's not willing that any perish, that all men would turn to him, pointing out in the scriptures God's willingness to save all men, that, and that all men are capable of receiving Jesus Christ. And I believe firmly that any doctrine that teaches otherwise has gone outside of the realm of Scripture and should be rejected. Any doctrine that teaches a limited atonement, a limited number of people who can be saved, I believe you need to reject that kind of doctrine because quite clearly God desires all men to be saved. And John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world, the whole world, that He sent His only begotten Son. It really can't be any plainer than that. And that is why, of course, we are to pray for all men, even kings. Because you don't have a king here, we have to say presidents. Oh, I don't see much agreement there. I don't hear many amens. Well, God is willing to save all. The lowly, the working men, and kings and emperors and presidents. Barclay puts it this way. Prayer is to be made for all men. The emperors and rulers for whom this letter bids us to pray were not Christians. They were in fact hostile to the church. Yet they were to be born to the throne of grace by the prayers of the church. For the true Christian there is no such thing as an enemy in all this world. None is outside his prayers. For none is outside of the love of Christ. And none is outside the purpose of God who wishes all men to be saved. You see, no one is beyond salvation. Not even those people that we see as world leaders or men in high position, we're told here to pray for them. And we must always be ready to receive sinners into our congregation and not to ever get to the place, and I don't think anybody here have never seen any evidence of it but not to get to the place where we we're not lovingly receiving sinners 
into our fellowship. If an unbeliever comes into our fellowship and finds out that he doesn't discover love, he doesn't experience love from those that are here and an acceptance into our midst, then we're failing. Now, if someone comes into our fellowship, as did somebody this morning, I heard from uh, one of the brothers, somebody came into our fellowship this morning and went out during the teaching and wasn't allowed back in. Well, I'm leaving this church. I'm never coming back to this church. I, this is my, I'm never going to visit this church. I'm not, never ever coming here. I'm going to find a church. I've been to three churches this la- and I, in the last three weeks. I haven't found one where there's any love. I'm leaving. <laughs> Who's got the problem? And people like that, it's, well, blessed subtractions. You know, see you later kind of thing. I mean, people who, you know, believe that sort of, Everything revolves around them. And, you know, people who claim to be believers. And yet they come into a place and, well, there's no love here. They've been here 10 minutes and just because they weren't allowed to come back in because we don't want folks being distracted from the Bible study. You know, well, there's no love here. Well, that's a load of baloney. But if unbelievers come in our presence and because they're unbelievers or because they're, you know... Different from us. Perhaps dressed differently or they're not cleaned up yet. (laughs) I mean in the spiritual sense. You know there's maybe some rough edges. Maybe some uh, coarseness. And maybe some things that we find a little bit difficult to uh, deal with. Nevertheless there's no class distinction with the gospel. And there's none beyond salvation. And we must always be ready to receive sinners. C.T. Studd used to say, Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. And that's the heart of God who desires all men to be saved. And so we are to request, we're to pray, we're to intercede on the behalf of others and to give thanks. And Of course, sometimes it's hard to consider or think about praying for world leaders, especially those that we find despicable or ungodly immoral men. How should we, you know, ask for God's blessing on his life? Well, does the scripture teach that these rulers are ordained by God or did somehow this one slip by him? Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king or the president. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 17. Now, understand this. Because I know people have a hard time with this. They say, how can this sort of thing be true when you have a wicked president or a wicked king, a wicked emperor? When Peter wrote, honor all men, love the brethren, fear God, honor the king or the emperor. Who was the emperor at the time? It was Nero, a terrible, cruel, and wicked man. Now, one of the church fathers, an early church father by the name of Tertullian wrote, The Christian is the enemy of no man, least of all the emperor. For we know that since he has been appointed by God, it is necessary that we should love him, reverence him, and honor him, and desire his safety together with that of the whole Roman Empire. The greatest of all the prayers for the emperor is in Clement of Rome's prayer, in his first letter to the church at Corinth, one of the first church fathers, Clement of Rome. And he wrote to the Corinthians about 90 AD, and This was not long after the terrible persecution under the reign of Domitian, the emperor of Rome, who was sort of reigned between 81 AD to 96 AD, and he was the one who exiled John to Patmos. This is what Clement writes or prays through this letter about praying for the emperor. He says, Thou, O Lord and Master, has given our rulers and governors the power of sovereignty through thine excellent and unspeakable might. 
that we, knowing the glory and honor which thou hast given them, may submit ourselves unto them, in nothing resisting thy will. Grant unto them, therefore, O Lord, health and peace and concord, stability, that they may administer the government which thou hast given them without failure. For thou, O heavenly Master, King of ages, givest to the sons of men glory and honor and power over all things that are upon the earth. Do thou, O Lord, direct their counsel according to that which is good and well-pleasing in thy sight, that administer the power which thou hast given them in peace and gentleness with godliness, that they may obtain thy favor. O thou who alone art able to do these things, and things far more exceeding good than these for us, we pray thee through the high priest and guardian of our soul, Jesus Christ, through whom be glory and majesty unto thee both now and for all generations and forever and ever. Amen. Wonderful prayer for the emperor of Rome, of the Roman Empire. Right after a terrible time of persecution. Then verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And again, Paul has made it very clear here that there is only one God, not a multitudes of God. One mediator. Jewish thought and Greek thought, of course, they did not have access to God, direct access, but we do through Christ Jesus. Through Jesus Christ, we can come directly to God. Not through any saints. No good praying to saints. Not through Mary, no matter how wonderful a girl Mary was. No good asking Mary to plead your case for you. She's not the intercessor. Only Jesus. He's the only one who can bridge that gap. He's the only one who has his hand on God and can put his hand upon me. And he was in the beginning with God and was God. And he became a man to stand in the gap for you and I. Who gave himself a ransom for all. Verse 6. To be testified in due time. Now the word ransom of course speaks to us of debt. A debt that was paid for my sin. A ransom speaking of course of paying for our redemption. Now the question comes up. To who was the debt owed? To whom was it paid? Did the, Because we were slaves to sin. And in bondage to the devil, was the debt owed to the devil? Did he need to be paid? Well, there are other words given to us that sort of explain these things. It's kind of difficult words, words we don't normally use in our language, English language. But you're intelligent people and most, a lot more intelligent than me, so you'll get it. There is a word, expiation. There is a word propitiation. Terms used by Christian theologians in their attempts to explain and define the meaning of this ransom of Christ's death upon the cross as it relates to God and the believer. Expiation emphasizes the removal of guilt through a payment of a penalty. While propitiation emphasizes the appeasement or the averting of God's wrath and justice. And both of these words are great words because they relate to reconciliation. And since it's through Christ's death upon the cross that we are reconciled to a holy God and his love for us. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so, I believe that the debt that was paid, the ransom note that had to be paid by the shedding of the blood of Christ, was paid to God. It had to be paid to Him. The ransom was paid to Him. He was the one who was owed, as it were. His justice had to be satisfied. And so, as we understand those words, expiation and 
propitiation. We understand the payment for the guilt and the appeasement of the wrath of God through the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross. And so he gave himself a ransom for all. Verse 7, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now Paul speaks here of being a preacher and a teacher. Is there a difference between preachers and teachers or preaching and teaching? Yes, there is. Paul was both a preacher and a teacher. As was Jesus. Jesus had a ministry of preaching and teaching in Matthew chapter 4 verse 23. Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. What a wonderful ministry the Lord Jesus had in preaching, teaching and healing. What a wonderful ministry. It's probably good to define the difference between preaching and teaching. Preaching has sometimes been explained as what you do when you evangelize, or preaching is what you do to the lost. Teaching is what you do to the saved. There may be some element of truth in that definition, but I don't think it's a complete definition. You see, you can evangelize as you teach. And you can preach to folks who are saved. I think a fuller definition is the one that says that preaching is a proclamation of the truth and teaching is an explanation of the truth when you preach you proclaim a truth you do not necessarily explain it it's kind of more or less what we do on Sunday mornings many of the times on Sunday mornings of course we do have an evangelistic emphasis but not always but very often it is a proclamation of truth without very much explanation or instruction. We usually get that on Sunday nights or on Wednesday nights. Where we do more of explanation, of teaching. You see, we need them both because the preaching is to move me. And the teaching is to explain where I'm going. We have to have a balance. Otherwise, if all I ever do is teach, folks might be well taught but never moved. Well educated but not motivated into obedience or to service. Full of knowledge and yet dull and lifeless. Then on the other hand, if all I ever do is preach... I may have people who are all motivated and fired up and ready to go, but nobody knows where they're going. Yes, let's go, let's do it, let's do it. Okay, what? <laughs> How? Where? And what's even more tragic, as often happens, is to have people all fired up about living for Christ with no instruction whatsoever on how to do so. And preaching is to move my will into obedience to Christ. But of equal if not more importance is the necessity to instruct me on how to move forward once I've been moved in my will as it were. By the proclamation of God's truth. The very simple truths these are but this balance is often neglected you see. And sad to say in many circles, not our circles... Now at the Calvary Chapel, we place a great emphasis upon teaching the Word of God. But in many circles, and some of you may not be familiar with this, some of you may because you've been part of other churches and other districts and other places where you've lived or the churches you've gone to. That's the neglected is the teaching ministry. The explanation of God's Word. The simple exposition of scripture in order to feed the flock is sadly neglected in many circles. To, as I say, to most of you it's commonplace, it's what we do. We teach through the Bible, what else is there to do? And you may say, what else would people do in church? And some of you who have only grown up in a Calvary Chapel, you say, what else is there to do? 
Well, there are many churches, sad to say, that simply do not teach the Word. They may teach about the Bible. They may even teach from the Bible. But so very few teach the Bible. Teach the Word of God. And this has been our emphasis and continues to be our emphasis at Calvary Chapel and will always continue to be our emphasis to emphasize the teaching of God's Word. And rightly so, but we must be careful to not allow it to be to the total exclusion of preaching. Now, before we move on, let me just give you a word about exposition. Because you need to recognize... Uh, and many of you do, but you need to recognize when you're being taught the word or when you're just getting whatever, whether it be from me or anybody else you listen to. But when we expound the scriptures, we are to practice, and here's another word for you that some of you may not be familiar with, some of you probably are and that is the word exegesis we're to practice exegesis that is it simply means to draw out of the passage that that is there and not to practice eisegesis which is the reading into the text that that is not there which unfortunately is what many preachers and some teachers do they bring into the text that that is not there. And if someone is claiming to be an expositor of Scripture, then they have to practice exegesis and draw out that that is there, not bring to it something that's not there. Of course, there are different methods of teaching. There is a topical message where you can take a, a text and, and it sort of gives you a springboard, you know, that springboard method of, you know, reading a text and then going off on all kinds of points that may be good and advantageous points, but have got absolutely nothing to do with the text you've just read. You've all heard that kind of preaching. And sometimes it's beneficial. I'm not saying it's not beneficial, but it's not exposition. And we feel that the best kind of teaching or the best way to feed the flock over a period of time is exposition. That's why we love to get you here on Sunday nights. To go through the Bible and to seek to be true to the text and draw out that that is there. Preaching and teaching. As it says when we're in the book of Nehemiah where Ezra got up and, and read the word and gave the understanding to the people. That's what exposition is. And also it's very important because this happens very often. You must be careful not to make logical assumptions in the attempt to understand scripture and arrive at unscriptural conclusions. That's where a lot of people get in trouble when they get off on all kinds of uh, systematic theology rather than just coming to the scripture and teaching that that's there they have to have it all you know a systematic theology where they sort to try to make it all fit together and understand it all and have it all in an ordered way and and you know exactly you know uh, where you stand but of course you end up in a couple of camps you can either be a Calvinist or you can be an Arminian and what happens is they begin to make logical assumptions in an attempt to understand Scripture, but they end up reaching on scriptural conclusions. We're not to go beyond Scripture. That will only take you to an extreme position, and that's not what we want to do. I mean, are we afraid? We ought never to be afraid. I'm not afraid to admit there are some things I just don't know. Well, you know, you've been here long enough, know that. You've probably known, either I've told you frankly, I don't know what this means, or you've heard me waffling on and going, he don't know what that means. <laughs> right? You're not dumb. You know when we're really happening and when we're, well, well who knows what we're doing here. We're struggling with this. And, and you have to 
file it away under that document file awaiting further revelation. There's nothing to be ashamed of or embarrassed about even if you're a teacher of the word of God to just simply say I'm awaiting further revelation on that one. Don't know. Don't understand that. Be very careful of that logical assumption or the pride that comes where you know you have to give an explanation for everything and you got to uh, you know use your own logic to really try to figure out what God's saying rather than taking him at his word at what he's saying I had a couple of guys on my staff some years ago that seemed to think that uh, Calvary here was a little too simplistic for them I in the end, ended up where I wasn't their teacher, and neither was Pastor Chuck or any other Calvary teacher. They went looking into the deeper things, and um, they moved further and further away from a balanced position, and eventually tried to split the church here. Went off into an unbalanced approach to ministry, reaching on biblical conclusions from following logical assumptions. We have to have this balance of preaching and teaching. And so it's neat where Paul says, you know, God made him a preacher and a teacher. And that's what Jesus did. And we got to be sure we have that balance. I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So he's a preacher. He's a teacher. I desire, therefore, verse 8, that the men... Pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. This is sort of back to the context of praying for people and in particular praying for leaders. Now what is this lifting hands in prayer? Actually, in a historical sense, this was the way that the Jewish people prayed. So it, in the early church, that would be a very familiar thing to them like it became a tradition in, in our culture or whatever not so much among you but put your hands together and close your eyes or whatever and pray in that way but in the Jewish culture it, it was simply to pray by lifting up your hands and praying to God this may speak of lifting up your hands in surrender to God it may speak of lifting your hands that are free from signifying therefore free from unholy things as it says, lift up holy hands here. Lifting up your hands to God and praying. Whatever it means, it is to be done without anger in our heart. As it says, lifting up holy hands without wrath. It's amazing how many people will pray and yet they have anger in their heart. Or wrath against another brother. You've heard it said, Jesus said of old... You shall not murder. Whosoever murders shall be in danger of judgment. I say to you, who is ever angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, if you're coming to God in prayer, and there you remember that brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will, will your father forgive them trespasses against you. And so he says you to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath, not to have anger in your heart. And remember he's talking about praying for the president. <laughs> Good! Get him, God. I know sometimes you might want to pray like that. Like David. Lord, break their teeth. <laughs> it's amazing though. You can have anger and hatred against a brother. And yet you come to the prayer meeting. and Bitterness in our heart. Can be a barrier between us and God. And, and here is basically speaking. That these are barriers. Between you and God when you come to pray. Without wrath and doubting or unbelief. That can be a barrier when you come to pray in unbelief. You to come believe that God hears and God answers prayer. And these are all hindrances then.
to prayer. Now if we continue and bear in mind this context of him beginning out this chapter by telling us to pray for all men everywhere and even to pray for the kings, as we continue on, you might see the next exhortation in this light as to be a hindrance or a distraction in prayer. In like manner, also, as well as the men are supposed to lift up their hands, their holy hands in prayer, women in like manner, they're to adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. Now a godly woman was to dress modestly. I've been waiting for this one. <laughs> Fashions come and fashions go. Things change. Of course we understand that. You want to look nice and be fashionable. Well in spite of you know the current fashion whatever it might be. A woman ought to be very careful not to dress in such a way. That she draws attention to herself. Even a guy too. Especially in a sensuous manner. Not to dress sensuously. Of course. It's not just, you, know, you take it literally and say, well, you can't have braided hair. Or you, you can't have any gold or you can't have any pearls. That's to miss the point. That was the mode of dress that the sensuous person used in Paul's day. And so you look at that. He's basically saying, don't dress in such a way that you attract folks in a sensuous manner. Be modest. I can understand in the world, you know, there's all this kind of bare midriffs and body piercings and diamonds through the navel and the whole thing. I can't for the life of me understand how a girl can come to church like that. I don't get it. I mean, it must be a problem for the younger guys. It must be. It's a problem for me. So it must be a problem for them. I don't think it's a thing to do. I don't think it's right for uh, you girls to come with your midriff showing with your fancy diamonds in it or your little ring in your navel or whatever just to draw attention to that part of your anatomy or anything along those lines. I don't think it's right. It's not the place. And it's really, any Christian woman ought not to dress like that anyway. But and I'm not speaking about fashion. I'm not saying, oh, well, we're Calvary Chapel. It really doesn't matter how we dress. We can dress in jeans. We can dress in, in suits or ties or what. Yeah, that's different. I'm not talking about the, the style of dress. I'm talking about modesty. A guy coming in with his, you know, shirt buttoned down here and, and, his, and his gold, you know, whatever, showing, coming in like, you know, somebody from the 70s or whatever. I mean, I'd have a problem like that with that too, you know. Thinks he's John Travolta walking in or whatever, you know. I mean, that would be a problem too. It's just a, a thing of modesty. And look around you and find some of the, the girls who take as an example those girls who have walked with the Lord for many years. And you take a look how they dress and how they carry themselves. They carry themselves as a lady. Modestly, I think that's what he's talking about, standing fast in modesty. And of course, for some people, these verses may be hard to receive, but they're just as much scripture as John 3.16. And as it says in 1 Peter chapter 3, Do not let your beauty be that outward adorning of arranging of the hair or the wearing of gold or putting on fine apparel. It's got to be the inward person. Let that be the beauty. I don't believe that a woman should, you know... Uh, because some have gone to the other extreme, and, and this was so when we were first Christians, you know, in the church there, there wasn't a stick of makeup on any of them, and they all had a hair up in a bun. I've never seen such a bunch of homely looking people <laughs> in my life. I don't say that you do that. Dear me. You know, they want you to look nice, but. We have to be careful, don't we? We don't go overboard with that, especially the sensuality. And you find yourself crossing that line into some kind of sensuality, then, you know, if you're trying on new clothes and you feel like they're sensual, then really, don't buy them. Simple as that. 
He says, but which is proper for a woman professing godliness. So you, you got to, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or cast a thing, or basically in our culture, not in wearing things or appearing in a sensual manner, but that which is proper for a woman professing godliness with good works. Now, let me say this. Not in the text. <laughs> but I've got to say this, girls. Young girls. Somehow, you get it in your head. The devil puts it there or whatever. You get it in your mind. I got to do this to get a guy. That I need to present myself in this way to get a guy. You'll get a guy all right. But it won't be the kind of guy that God wants for you. Because any man of God, although, of course, it's going to be attractive to him in a sensual way, in a, a godly man have the same kind of feelings as ungodly men. But a godly man is going to think, I don't think so. You know, that's not really the kind of woman I want to spend my life with. You can be beautiful and attractive and, in a physical sense, and, but more so if it's inward. Something inside coming out of the love of God. And if you have to dress sensually, and why in the world would a woman or a girl, a young girl or whatever, want to dress in a sensuous way and come into church to find a guy? That beats me, that does. Unless you think, well, all the fellows in our church are all a bunch of carnal guys or something. And this is the only way to get them to notice me. If that's the way they notice you, there's something wrong with him and there's something wrong with you. He says, which is proper for a woman professing godliness. Okay, professing godliness and let that come out. We know that God doesn't look on the outward. He looks on the inside. But honestly, that that's on the inside is going to come out on the outside. You do have some fine examples of godly women here at the church, you younger women. And you should take notice of that. And so, we know then that Paul is writing to Timothy on how to behave in the church. He says that in verse 15 of chapter 3. Look, he says, If I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. He's basically writing to let Timothy know that he might let the people know how they should conduct themselves in the church. Now, we have to understand that we take this in its local and cultural settings to understand it fully. As we did when we were in the book of Corinthians, we spoke about the women being required to wear veils as a covering and they were required at the church in Corinth to do that. Now, does that mean that today all women in the church must wear veils? And we concluded that no, that that was a local custom that differentiated them between the, the local temple prostitutes of Aphrodite. They're in Corinth. And so the women were to wear a veil. But Paul went on to say that this was not a universal practice for all the churches. And so a similar situation existed in Ephesus where they were to be differentiated between them and temple prostitutes. And the priestesses, which were basically just prostitutes, they would go out on the streets to get money to support the temple of Diana there in Ephesus. And so... And they would be known and recognized for the way they dressed. And the way they conducted themselves. And so when a person looks at you, they want to say there is a godly woman. Or at the least, there's somebody with some class. They don't want to look at you and think, boy, she looks like one of them walking down the, you know. I mean, that was the reason why he told them, why Paul was exhorting them. He needed to differentiate between those temple prostitutes and the women of God. But now, with that in mind, he goes on again to say, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. I think we'll take this next week. <laughs> Quit while we're winning here. 
Well, again, we have to basically understand what he's saying. He's saying, don't be like the worldly women, brash and loud. Again, taken in context with the culture is also in context with the rest of Scripture. When you seek to interpret Scripture, you've got to bear it in context with the rest of Scripture. Now, what can this mean then when it says, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Do be in silence. Now, first of all, it cannot mean that in all circumstances, women are to sit in silence and never teach. You can't possibly mean that because when Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he brought up the subject of women praying, he says, when she prays or prophesies, let her do so with her head covered. Remember, that was to differentiate between them and the priestesses of the Aphrodite. Let them be veiled when they pray or prophesy. So obviously, in the church in Corinth, the women prayed and prophesied. Because when they do, let them be veiled. So he can't possibly be teaching that at all time, in all circumstances, the women have to sit there and not say a word. He can't possibly be saying that. And if we say dogmatically that a woman is to be silent in the church, how would she ever sing? I mean, who'd do the woman's part? Who'd do the repeat part? Who do the echo? No echo. Well, we're just being obedient to Scripture and it says we're supposed to be silent. No echo. And what do we make of the verse in Galatians where it tells us in Galatians 3 verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. In Christ we're all one. Not to treat men and women differently. And again, when you look into Scripture, you cannot say that women are not to have an active part in ministry because, you see, in many instances in the Bible, women ministering. In the Old Testament, there was a prophetess by the name of Huldah. You find her in 2 Kings chapter 22. She was consulted and used by God to give direction for the nation. A prophetess. There was Deborah, of course, that God used in a mighty way as a deliverer of Israel from Sisera. There was Esther, who was used in a mighty way to save the whole nation of the Jews. And then you come to the New Testament. Guess who's the first one to go tell the people about who's risen? Mary Magdalene was the first messenger of the resurrection. The first one to preach, to proclaim the resurrection. Then, of course, there were many other women in the Bible. There's Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla mentioned as uh, two co-workers of Paul. More times than not, Priscilla is mentioned before Aquila. There are Bible commentators that seem to think that she was, in fact, the most prominent one in regards to the ministry. And it was Priscilla and Aquila who instructed Apollos in the furtherance of the fuller gospel. And so, there are several women in the book of Romans. Chapter 16 mentioned as laborers together and co-laborers with Paul. What to make of this? I do believe, personally, that when the whole church comes together, that uh, really, I believe the scripture teaches it's man's role to teach the word of God. But I would never say that I cannot receive from a woman. Listening to Anne Graham Lotz, listening to Joy Dawson, can receive. Now, I want to read you a little bit from uh, Dr. Ironside, Harry Ironside. His commentary on 1 Timothy 
He gives an illustration about this. He said, I had rather an unusual experience some years ago. I went to a certain summer Bible conference for the first time. On this occasion, I was invited by Dr. Torrey. A lady Bible teacher was present whom I had not met before. I think out of mischief, Dr. Torrey seated me at the table with the lady because he knew how I felt as to women preachers. I had the privilege of eating with this gracious lady twice a day and we became quite well acquainted. As I was coming out of the tabernacle after my address at 11 o'clock one day, I noticed a blackboard sign which read, At four o'clock, Miss So-and-so will give an exposition of the book of Acts. I decided I would go and hear her, which I did. At the dinner, I was in my place ahead of her. And when she came in, she shook her finger at me and said, You should not have attended my meetings. You were there only to embarrass me. Why do you say that? I asked. She said, Well, you do not believe in women preachers, she said. You believe in taking literally those passages of Paul. I asked her, Well, how do you believe in taking them? She replied, Well, I do not know. They have troubled me during most of my ministry. I do know God has given me a gift to teach His Word, and I feel responsible to do that, but I've never understood what Paul meant when he said, I suffer not a woman to teach, nor usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. I said, I do not have any trouble about it. When we gathered on Sunday for the regular service where Dr. Turry was to preach, if you would have gotten up and walked up to him and said, Dr. Turry, I understand that passage and I'll do the preaching this morning. Then I believe you would have been definitely disobeying this command. But when I saw the sign that at four o'clock this afternoon you were going to give an exposition of the book of Acts, I said to myself, if Sister Priscilla is going to expound the book of Acts. I can be like Apollos, and I can sit at her feet. And I'll be glad to do it. So I went to hear you, and I enjoyed what you said. I got a great deal of help from your address. You did not usurp authority over me. I went voluntarily to hear you. And everything seemed clear to her then, and she thanked me for what I put before her. So I think uh, a good illustration to show that we all have our place in the ministry. We have a wonderful women's ministry here. Men are different from women. We've got different roles. Often a man is ruled by his head, his mind, a woman by her heart. The woman was deceived by the serpent. The man made a conscious decision, acted for himself. We have to thank God for the influence of godly women. And so, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Boy, you could spend an all evening on that verse 15, couldn't you? She'll be saved in childbearing. Now what does that mean? I've got three explanations. <laughs> One of them is basically my wife's theology. <laughs> Not now. Of years ago. When she was pregnant with Joel. We were young believers. We were in a church that emphasized faith perhaps a little bit too much this is before the faith movement was around but we were sought to believe in that if you didn't confess it and you didn't you refuse to have it you wouldn't have to have it so my wife believed this scripture she will be saved in childbearing she thought that meant she wouldn't have any pain <laughs> that she was going to give birth to Joel and she would not have any pain. No labor pains. None of the terrible screaming and pain and agony that you girls are privileged to, to bear. Of course, that theology didn't last long. As soon as the first contraction came, 
which is only a little one in comparison to what was to come, she immediately changed the theology. So we'll discard that particular understanding. I don't think anybody believes that. That it means that if you've got enough faith, you won't have to have any pain in childbearing. There is another interpretation that women will find fulfillment in the raising of children in their homes. That their salvation, as it were, or that they, they will find their true fulfillment in their place of raising children. There's a lot of truth in that. There's great fulfillment in being a mother and raising your children, and taking care of your children. There is another understanding, and that is that sin came into the world through Eve coming and taking of the fruit and Adam, and Jesus came into the world through Mary, and so she will be saved through childbearing, through the bearing of the child, Jesus Christ. Well, you pick whichever you want. I kind of tend to believe the third one. And I know my wife doesn't believe the first one anymore. But you pick whatever you want. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, this chapter that gives us instruction. We thank you, Lord, that we can receive instruction from you. We pray, Lord, that we would understand and we would be faithful to the text and the scriptures that we find and reveal to us. We pray, Lord, that we might learn and grow, be edified in things we read and things we learn. Give you the glory, Lord, in Jesus' name. Sound Truth is an outreach of Calvary Chapel, Merritt Island, Florida. To request a free Sound Truth tape catalog featuring all of Pastor Malcolm's teaching tapes, call toll-free 1-888-508-6779 or find us on the web at www.calvarychapel.com forward slash Merritt Island. And may the Lord continue to strengthen and encourage you as you study His Word.